In 2022, 274 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. Preventing, mitigating and responding to humanitarian crises is a challenge. Can fiction and storytelling play a role? Can it raise awareness and motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises? My name is Ruth Mukwana and I host the Saha podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. Welcome to the Sahapod Stories and Humanitarian Action. I have a great guest for you today. Before I introduce him, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to my YouTube, YouTube channel, like, comment, and share this video. My guest today is Sebastian Treve, who is a French national born in 1970, currently working for the NGO Acted in Paris. Prior, that, prior to that, he worked as director of the humanitarian advisory team to the Famine Relief Fund. He also worked as head of the OCHA office for Yemen and Syria and as chief of section with OCHA again in New York. Mr. Treve also worked for UNRWA in Gaza for five years, four of which he spent as deputy director of UNRWA operations in charge of emergency programs. Between 2000 and 2006, he worked in Afghanistan first as country director for ACTED, and then from 2003 to 2006 as head of the UNAMA regional office for the southeastern region. He started his international career with the OSCE mission in Tajikistan as field officer. He holds an MA, an MA in international relations a BA in International Affairs and History, and a Diploma in European Studies. Welcome, welcome today, and thank you for making the time to speak with me. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to see you again. Yeah, and uh, I know we've, you know, we spoke a little bit last time when we were preparing for the, for the, for this podcast, actually, and I, Actually, before I do that, let me just ask you, how did you end up in the humanitarian sector? Mm. Um, was was by chance, in a sense, that uh, I ended up uh, working as a humanitarian. I, um, as you just mentioned, I worked for the uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe in Tajikistan in the late 90s. Um, um, focusing on, on non-humanitarian work, it was after the Tajik uh, civil war, and I was based for two years in um, in the south of the country in a place called Dusti, uh, which is just right on the Afghan border. And I you know, grew very fond of Central Asia, um, and I met with a number of humanitarians who were operating from Tajikistan into Afghanistan. And at the time, um, so I developed a bit of a fascination for Afghanistan. And at the time, in order to be able to to work there uh, and live there. There wasn't a whole lot you could do except for humanitarian work. This was the first uh, Taliban government. So I got a job as country director for uh, for the NGO ACTA that I'm again working for in 2000. So it's through Afghanistan that I uh, uh, became a humanitarian and I had you know, learned basically from scratch because I didn't know much about it when I uh, started working um, as a humanitarian in uh, 2000. Right. And um, what does ACTED do? So, uh, I mean, um, what uh, ACTED is a generalist uh, French NGO, which has been created in Afghanistan in, uh, in the mid-90s. Um, what, uh, what I'm focusing on in ACTED um, is a program called uh, Agora. Um, and basically, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attempt to... Um, plan and deliver aid in a way that uh, uh, grounds it in local knowledge and uh, mm -hmm. um, is delivers in a way that empowers people, uh, local people and local communities, and and uh, is more accountable to them. So, to use our jargon, it's it's a it's it's a methodology that attempts to very practically uh, implement this accountability to affected people, localization, and. Uh, in Nexus um, um, agenda. 
And I mean, these are all big words, but in, in practical terms, um, it, it's, uh, it has a number of features. Number one, it's an area-based approach. So it, it, it looks at territories um, rather than sectors. And it, it, um, it tries to use territories that, are, that make sense to the local community. So we're not looking at mm-hmm. imposing um, you know, arbitrary uh, territorial distinctions uh, that don't pre-exist. Um, we try to work with community interfaces um, that are legitimate and accountable, uh, not creating mm-hmm. new ones. And then the whole idea is to help people, um, communities and local authorities develop their own priorities um, and then it help them implement that either directly by uh, carrying out programs, uh, implementing projects that, that we pick from the priorities that they have laid out in their recovery plans or um, giving visibility to these uh, priorities with um, other actors, the government or um, uh, you know, coordination structures. Um, so that's what we're we're trying to do. It's a it's it's a way to rethink um, how we 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 do aid. And of course, when people articulate their their, their priorities, it's never going to be just humanitarian or or recovery right. or development. It's of course a mix of both. So yeah, we're piloting this in in, in a number of countries. Uh, it's a it's a, it's it's very interesting, and um, we hope that it will. Um, you know, bring uh, bring aid that is more effective uh, and more accountable to people. Yeah, no, and I know you've <coughs> excuse me, uh, you've mentioned it already. One of the challenges is actually how do we empower people more, and how are we accountable as a humanitarian community to the people that we are there to help? Um, I'm going to come back to you. To ask you a little bit about more Afghanistan, but before I do that, I did want to ask you as well, like, what do you enjoy the most about your job? Um, I mean, what uh, about this particular job? What I enjoy is that it's uh, it's, it's allowing me to, to to kind of take stock and reflect on you know. The, almost 20, 20 plus years of, of, of work, mostly in the humanitarian field, um, and and try to draw lessons from from that uh, and apply them to uh, to improve um, the way we, we deliver, both as an organization, but also, um, you know, try to also find ways to um, to propose new approaches to uh, to the system. So that's that's exciting, of course. Um, it's uh, the... the the, this this idea of local knowledge is also uh, particularly interesting because it means um, you need to understand the contexts uh, that that you're working in uh, in a in a way that's much more nuanced that than uh, than is current normally the case when we do humanitarian work. So um, it also forces you to to try to apprehend um, the context in which you work in. Um, you know, the different ways of thinking, the diff- different modes of existence, so to speak, if I can use big terms. Um, and that's uh, that's intellectually challenging. It brings together, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of humanitarian work, the programming, the program cycle, the, the projects, and so on and so forth, with some other elements, um, you know, looking at anthropology, looking at ethnology, and all this, which is, uh, which which I very much like. Uh, so in this particular job, that's what... Yeah. Uh, which I find interesting. Yeah. And another question just about you is um if you had to think about through all of these years, through all of these years that you've been working in the humanitarian mm-hmm. sector, one one thing you've what's your greatest achievement? Like one thing you're really proud of of doing? Mm. Um I think I mean it's Difficult to say that uh, you know one is proud about because it's never really uh, um, your you know your own individual achievement. It's a collective achievement, uh, so to speak. So I think that uh, um, the one thing that uh, I found I found most both frustrating but also very rewarding in in my uh, in my more recent experience. Um, is uh, is working in Syria, mm-hmm. uh, where I was part of a broader team, of course. And what was very peculiar about the Syria response, of course, as you know, it was a 
um, one of the larger, uh, it was the largest um, protection humanitarian access crisis at the time. Um, and, you know, the worst um, violations of, of, uh, of international norms were being committed, um, use of chemical weapons and, and, uh, and uh, uh, besiegement, targeting of civilian objects and all that. And the, there was very little response uh, in from the international community that would, you know, that would uh, translate into a change in the way that the, the, the conduct of war was being uh, uh, was being brought forward. So we are the humanitarians were um, in this situation very much alone in uh, in the country, trying right. to deliver in a very difficult situation. And um, because we were the only representatives of the, kind of the multilater multilateral system in country, there was a lot of confusion around our role. Uh, people were. Uh, people inside the country, naturally, understandably, and people also outside looking at us were wondering why we were not able to end seizures and, uh, you know, uh, prevent uh, um, protection violations. And so, of course, this was beyond our means as humanitarians. But what I found most um, most interesting, um, and uh, I guess we can be proud of it as a system, and, and as Ocha, I would say, is that you know that we could have just said, well, this, you know, these, these are the cards that have been dealt to us uh, as humanitarians. We can't really influence the parameters of this. Uh, we'll just do what we, the best we can and deliver what we can right. deliver. But we didn't do that. Um, I think this was a, a very good example of, of the of the system, really trying to leave no stone unturned to to try to affect the parameters uh, of what was possible. And the way it did this is was by engaging with. Um, with, with politics, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, there are three things in particular that I think the system did well. Um, number one was to decide that it would want to engage with the Security Council to pass a humanitarian resolution. There was no space for a political resolution, of course. Uh, right. Everybody knew that. But there was a thinking that perhaps there was a space for a humanitarian resolution. And that was um, the result of that was Resolution 2165, which enabled cross-border, but also... Um, provided a, a forum every month for the humanitarians to to advocate uh, for protection and for access in Syria, in particular access to besieged areas. Um, and the second thing that I think we can take particularly uh, pride in uh, is that we, and I think this is really much of a thing, we, we came together and uh, arranged our work so that we could create the evidence base required to, um, to support, to inform the narrative uh, right. that humanitarian leaders needed to make the case, make a compelling case to the Security Council on access. So we created an access analysis uh, framework that essentially looked at Syria through the lens of access. So what is besieged, what is not besieged, what is hard to reach, how that was evolving. Um, and uh, that had to be robust and had to be, um, you know, withstand scrutiny. Um, mm -hmm. You can imagine scrutiny, public scrutiny. So we did that, and at the same time, there was an operational element to this because, of course, we were asking, asking for access, not just advocating. We wanted to go in. So we, we, we set up with our partners, the UN agencies and, and ICRC, a whole system to deliver uh, uh, um, uh, interagency convoys, uh, aid convoys, to besieged and hard-to-reach areas, mm -hmm. military central areas, uh, whenever we, we had the, uh, the opportunity to do so. So... Um, that was, of course, a huge amount of work, but it was uh, it was very, um, I think, um, uh, instrumental in in uh, making sure that um, we could really get uh, as much mileage as possible from this uh, Security Council forum. And the last thing that we did, again related to politics, is that there was a special envoy in charge of trying to um, bring the parties together, and um, there was a. A decision again to work with that special envoy uh, on humanitarian access issues. Um, there was a group of countries that came together, co-led by Russia and uh, and uh, the Russian Federation and the U.S. with Jan England, who was appointed as a special advisor, humanitarian advisor to the special envoy. And um, that group of country was dedicated fully and solely to trying to you know push humanitarian access, uh, push. Um, uh, interagency convoys, uh, and we we were there in the country, working <coughs> working um, to try to do that, engaging with them, giving them information. So the combination of the cross border resolution, the form that that this uh, Security Council resolution provided, the technical work we did to deliver and to you know inform the narrative, yeah. and the work with the special envoy was I think very uh, very good, and it's 
not free of risk, of course, because it's not about instrumentalizing politics. Yeah. You get also instrumentalized by politics. But I think, um, you know, in retrospect, we certainly did much more than we would have done uh, in terms of, right. you know, having better human outcomes. Uh, and I think that's something I, re I reflect on it as something that I was participating in, part of that uh, right. uh, I could be proud of. Yeah. No, and, and thank you for sharing this. Uh, you know, uh, I know, you know, working across colleagues from Syria and up to today, it's, it's I mean, it's been a big crisis. Um, and, okay, I still there? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Can you hear me? Because <laughs> I don't, no, I hear you, but I don't see you, but I think it's fine. It says, yeah. <laughs> I okay. see you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, now, I was just saying that, um, yeah, the, the, all the work on Syria, I know from colleagues working, including yourself, it's, it's always been very intense, but it's also left a legacy. And, and I hear you looking at, you know, politics and humanitarian and the humanitarian principles, but it did leave a legacy where actually cross-border operations uh, were possible and sanctioned through the Security Council to actually as you say, enable better or positive humanitarian outcomes, you know, to really get aid to people who needed it. Indeed. Yeah. Um, can I just come back a bit to Afghanistan? And one of the questions that, because you've worked there quite a few times, right? Yeah. Um, yeah and I wonder, yeah, and I wonder, like, what kind of changes have you seen? And the reason I ask this is that sometimes I feel personally that sometimes some situations just never seem to get better mm. um, or maybe they do and it's just not communicated. But suddenly, you know, what, what we tend to see, like as I was preparing to speak to you, also because the book we are going to talk about is Best in Afghanistan, you know, I was looking yeah. at the the numbers in the global humanitarian mm. overview for this year you know it's like 24.4 million people in need which is really more than half of the population um you know i think at the end of uh, last year you know afghanistan afghanistan had you know second drought in four years highest number of people in in emergency food insecurity um I mean, for you, I mean, just to me, kind of thinking through, like you've been there many times. Mm -hmm. You know, what improvements have you seen, or what is the situation, and what is really driving such yeah. astronomical needs? Yeah, so I mean, I've spent five years there, working as human general, also working for the, the political mission back in the days uh, for three years, and then recently I, I've been spending quite a bit of time in, in the country. Um, and I mean, one thing that's clear is that Afghanistan has been, you know, experiencing going through various levels of humanitarian needs. It's been in a humanitarian crisis for more than 40 years, right? But it's really taken a turn, uh, for the worst, um, since August. And it's, um, what's, what's clear is that, you know, it's, we're talking about different types of needs here. Uh, yeah. before August, most of the needs were related to, uh, the, the, the insurgency, the conflict, displacement uh, and then protection issues around that um, now most of these type of need, types of needs have receded largely because there is much less conflict in fact the country has been uh, uh, you know more or less at peace for the first time mm -hmm. for 42 years um, but um, but you have because of the the, the, uh, the takeover of the, of, of the Taliban um, you have a very very uh, uh, harsh um, economic situation, very difficult economic situation because of the fact that all foreign aid in the country was heavily dependent on foreign aid has mm -hmm. been cut except for humanitarian assistance. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was reading an ICG report recently that, that mentioned that this was the, the biggest economic shock any country had experienced uh, in, in recent history. Um, so the impact is, is really tremendous. There's no question. Um, uh, of course, there's less of uh, the, you know, the, the, the negative impact of conflict because there's less conflict. But now there's many more right. people in, in need of humanitarian assistance. As you mentioned, more than half the country is in need of assistance. Um, it's particularly acute in, in urban areas because here we have, this is a country that's been 
urbanizing very quickly. We now have about 30% of the people population in urban areas, up from like you know 5% in, in uh, 20 years ago. And um, and these people, for, most, for the most part, uh, are relying on, on commerce and are relying on, on public sector salaries. And these have been either not paid or, or, you know, there's been a huge economic downturn. So very difficult for these people. In uh, rural areas, as you said, there's been years of drought, so it's also been difficult. But people are more resilient. And the good news is, you know, going to rural areas a couple of times over the last months is that, they, they, you know, there is, a, there, is, there is hope that the harvest will be better. So that will hopefully lessen, lessen the blow. I think the one, um, you know, the one big problem is, is that the, the causes of, of all these needs, of course, are beyond our reach, um, you know, and they're not beyond the reach of humanitarians to address. And they're not, you know, they're not, uh, doesn't look like they're going to be addressed anytime soon. Uh, it could take a while for them to be addressed. Yeah. Um, so what's really the biggest humanitarian challenge we're facing in Afghanistan now is that the country is going to, continue to depend heavily on humanitarian aid, not just to feed, uh, you know, a large number of Afghans, but also to keep basic health and education services running uh, and maybe other services, like a little bit like in Yemen, uh, because, the, you know, humanitarians can come in and, and uh, are the only ones who can play that role uh, because right. of political uh, constraints. So that could take a long time. And uh, that's why uh, now on top of that, we have the increase of prices related to the Ukraine war and all this. So it's really yeah. very important for Afghanistan that the international community is able to stay the course until such time as the political solutions that are needed are found. And that could take some time that this uh, large-scale humanitarian effort uh, uh, continues because, of course, this is largely also the, the result of, of uh, um, you know, the, the, the history of the last 20 years. So I think we really owe Afghans to, uh, um, to at least help them with that uh, as they grapple with their own issues. Yeah, no. And I mean, when you, I think the point you ended up there with, you know, it's like 20 years. So kind of thinking about it, someone who was born 20 years ago has pretty much just lived through a situation mm. that's been, you know, untenable on, on so many levels. Um going to go into uh, speaking about um, 99 Nights in Logar which is the mm -hmm. book by Jamil Jan Kocha. Mm -hmm. um, before I do that, um, I didn't want to actually get your own perspectives on fiction. Can fiction raise awareness and can it motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis? What is your own tech? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... For sure, uh, fiction and, and literature in more general terms. I mean, I think there's, there are other types of, of literature that, uh, that can play that role. And it, it can do that in a number of ways. And I think the, the book that we'll talk about uh, illustrates that. I would say that in general, um, you know, we're living, of course, in a very complex world. Uh, and anything that, that, to understand anything in that world, you need to, you know, you need time, you need, you need to understand the nuances of things. And, it just so happened that we live in a time where we put a big primacy on immediacy, you know, mm -hmm. um, everything has to be done very quickly. There isn't much time for, for, for nuance. Um, and I think literature is, is, you know, is, uh, uh, very important in, in our time right now because it, it, you know, it provides that longer time frame uh, for reflection and it helps us kind of apprehend uh, the world and its complexity. So that, that applies across the world for all, uh, situations. Um, and you know all human situations, but of course it also applies for um, for uh, uh, humanitarian settings. Um, and I mean, I guess it it's particularly important in humanitarian settings because because these settings are most often very distant, very distant. Mm -hmm. Sorry, from uh, from uh, you know the, the, I think it's, it's Michael Barnett um, who wrote a history on of humanitarianism, who defined humanitarianism as a um, if I'm not mistaken, he said is a, a governance of acts of compassion across borders. So you have governance, which means, uh, you know, unequal power relations, and you have uh, across borders, which means mm -hmm. usually very distant places. So it's how do we apprehend uh, this otherness, right? The, the other modes of thinking. And, and um, so literature uh, and, and uh, you know, fiction can help us 
um, understand the context better, uh, give you know gives gives some texture and and uh, depth to uh, to places that we don't necessarily understand. It can also make us understand uh, um, you know the way people think um, and uh, and you know give give a, a, a yeah make humanity in those places come to life uh, in a way that's important because. Uh, very often we come with our own bias as humanitarians, of mm -hmm. course, that's normal. I mean, in the 19th century, people came with their own bias, uh, mm -hmm. imperialist bias, or religious bias. It's still the same in, 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 some, in some ways. We have to be aware of that. Um, and um, I think it also helps us to, you know, to think through uh, about our responsibility. So if we understand the, 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 the places, if we understand the humanity and the, the, the various types of, of, of humanities that are there, um, will be better uh, in in our ability to think through the responsibility that we have in terms of how we deliver. So, you know, the the good that we do, the harm that we do, right. uh, understand that responsibility, remaining vigilant about it. I think literature can help us uh, very much uh, in 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 that regard. Right, and I know, and I'm glad you mentioned, you know, literature in general um, can do that. And I know, even as I really work on on this podcast as I speak to people a lot of people often ask me why are you not um using non-fiction as well because non-fiction as well is, is is very very powerful as well and I've been really intentional in 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 focusing on fiction um mostly because I personally find it easier to discuss fiction than non-fiction you know you're kind of looking at characters that um, just basically characters that are created as opposed to discussing people's personal experiences uh, more than anything but I also know as we were speaking a couple of weeks ago um, about what book to discuss you did make a point about narrative fiction in 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 general as well and maybe I did want to come back to you on that as well. What, what do you think about narrative fiction? I mean, what is, I guess, let me ask it differently. How do narrative you Narrative non nonfiction. Narrative nonfiction. Non ah, okay. I get yeah. it now. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, narrative nonfiction, I was, uh, you know, the reason why we had this discussion is because I was thinking about uh, the books uh, that I could, you know, come and discuss with you. And, and one of them was a narrative nonfiction book. Uh, narrative nonfiction is 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 a, is a genre of literature that is uh, fairly new, and therefore that I think that's it's not very uh, widely known. Um, and essentially, it will uh, it will it will use a literary style mm -hmm. um, uh, and a narrative style um, to to describe something that is grounded in reality so it's it's not fiction so to speak it's non-fiction but it's 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 being brought brought forward in the literary style uh using you know different uh um different literary approaches um, right so it can it very much i think it can very much achieve the same goals as as uh, fiction in terms of you know how uh um in terms of the things that i described and i'm sure many others uh to make us understand and relate to the places where we intervene uh more intelligently more right right no got it um i guess i'll think about that as well because i've been very very intentional about just um focusing on fiction but i also speak to a lot of people mm. who say look it, it's very fluid these days like a lot of genres are not just fiction or not non-fiction there's a lot of uh, mm -hmm. people today who are really merging uh, both fiction and, and, and non-fiction, and as you're saying, narrative non-fiction as well. Mm. Um, 99 Nights in Logger, what is this book about? So, um, it's a, uh, that, that's, that's fiction, it's a novel. Um, um, and it's a, it's a book by a, an African-American author, uh, Jamil Jan Kuchai, who essentially talks about the the um, the vacation of a young boy, a ten year old mm -hmm. boy who is an African American who comes to Logar on vacation in uh, in, in in a fairly rural area. I mean, Logar is rural, but you know it's in the village, 
it's not uh, uh, in uh, in Kuliadam, in the center of, uh, of, of, the, of, the, of the of the province, and it uh, it it you know it talks about um, those vacations um, and um, you know the the, um, the family environment uh, and beyond that, of course, uh, you know the perception that this boy has of uh, of Afghanistan, uh, and I think. The reason I wanted to choose this book is, um, first of all, Afghanistan is a place that I uh, that is very dear to me. So I, I you know, I, I, um, I was interested by by the book for that reason. The literary style, I think, uh, mm-hmm. is uh, is great as well. But beyond that, it you know the fact that it's uh, because Afghanistan is is a distant land uh, from my perspective, of course, me being French. Um, the, the the fact that it was. You know, it, it describes uh, the situation through the eyes of a, of, a, of a child. A lot of the a lot of the, the story actually takes place between children. It describes family life. It describes the tension between um, tradition and modernity. Uh, you know, it describes the conflict, but it's never central. It's always uh, out there. Um, it really, uh, it really, you know, provides this this background of Afghanistan uh, in a very endearing light. And of course, you know, because we have this tendency of, uh, I thought it was relevant because we have this tendency in, in, in our in our business, uh, humanitarian business, if I can use that word, to see people as beneficiaries of aid and people, you know, victims, people without agency, uh, numbers, you know, uh, mm-hmm. without being derogatory. And I think that... Um, that book is a great antidote to that. Uh, in the way it, you know, it, come, it makes Afghanistan come to life, uh, and the reality of these Afghans um, and their and their humanity. So, I thought it was a good uh, a good example. Yeah, no, and actually, I'm glad we ended up talking uh, a week later because I actually read it. Um, I hadn't read it before. Oh, you did? I did. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Well, well <laughs> yeah, so I'm actually grateful for the the extra time to be able to do that. And I had not, I hadn't heard about the book until you 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 mentioned it to me. And so I'm always excited actually to mm. also discover new books. Um, one thing that struck me, and maybe, and I think you've mentioned mm-hmm. it, but maybe you can talk more about it. Like mm. the, I mean, child children characters are always, always, always interesting, and I think I always mm-hmm. like reading children narrators anyway. But one thing that struck me is the war is there; uh, it's always in the background, but it is not the focus as such of the novel and maybe you can say more about that because I I hadn't and I've read a few fiction books on Afghanistan but I hadn't really read any book to me that made the country or the culture more alive than this book did um, and as I also read it I kept thinking like you know this is how Afghans live in this kind of war that went on for so long. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a good point. I mean, I I think it's the book is is uh, uh, beautiful, uh, beautifully written, and and uh, interesting because it gives you color, texture. You know, it gives you an understanding of of, uh, of the lives uh, of Afghans. You know, outside of the conflict. Uh, you know, just. Uh, um, you know, just the life of a family and, and, and the interactions yeah. that are there. Um, but also the fact that the conflict is in the background there is in a way um, very much the reality. I mean, there's been yeah. 40, well, up to recently, you know, there was ongoing conflict for more than 40 years. So that conflict has very much become the backdrop um, yeah. that people had to live against. And it comes in and out of people's lives, depending, because we're not talking about a, you know, high-intensity conflict here. Um uh, but um, but yeah, so in a way, the book is also faithful to real to the real, yeah. to the situation in Afghanistan in in the way it places the conflict as an important but secondary kind of backdrop. Yeah, yeah, and um, storytelling. I mean, there's so many stories uh, in in this book, and as I was reading, 
the, the stories, stories, yeah, the, the stories and the tales, and maybe you can say more about that. But again, I kind of felt, you know, it's a way. I felt it was a way for this family, for these characters, to relieve some of the loss. Because I think a lot of the stories were actually about what happened at a certain point in the war, or someone who died, you know, someone who lost uh, a relative, whether a brother or a parent, and using storytelling or these tales to share that experience and, and what happened. So yes, uh, I didn't mention this. So you have, of course, the, you know, the, the narrative thread with this young boy and, and his friends uh, and what they're doing, right? Um, but you also have um, throughout um, people telling stories about the past, um, about you know, the, the, the different uh, characters from the family and how, you know, what happened to them. And it's very often, they're very often related. In fact, I think they're always related to the conflict. Um, yeah. And they, they bring, you know, they, they, they go back to the beginning of, of the, well, the revolution or the you know, 80s. And they talk about, uh, indeed, losses. They talk also, they also talk about the, um, you know the, the 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 relationships that exists uh, beyond tribe, beyond ethnicity, uh, beyond even political colors, um, and um, and somehow how this, I mean, it's been the drama uh, mm -hmm. of Afghanistan in a sense, but but it's also been there's a there's a sort of of resilience um, that keeps Afghan together's Afghans together, sorry, uh, despite these uh, these forty years. Um, of war, and I think these stories are are uh, good illustrations of that. When you take them together, you know, yeah. they provide a, a canvas that's uh, that's interesting. In fact, I hadn't thought of this until you mentioned it. Yeah, no, and it was funny as well. I mean, there are so many moments that um, when the boys um, looking for Buddha Bash, you know, of course, you know, the book starts. Yes, the dog. <laughs> And I can't figure out whether Buddha Bash was actually a dog or not. <laughs> dog monster, it's unclear. Yeah, yeah. But I, also, I mean, just for people who may listen to us, what I also liked is, is the way, uh, you know, the literary style, which takes, you know, it takes you from, from a very down-to-earth uh, yeah. reality type of setting into kind of psychedelic, um, you know, uh, um, moments where reality... Yeah is distorted um and uh it's beautifully done of course but uh, it's also very interesting that way. yeah Budabash the dog becomes you know we don't yeah it becomes <laughs> becomes something else yeah yeah and you know coming back to i guess and as i was thinking about you know the book as well um I think what you said a little bit about, you know, fiction giving us more nuance, but also dealing with more complex um, situations. Um, and and, and Mawand, um, who is actually the main character or the narrator of, of, mm. of, of, of the book, who's quite an unreliable character as well, mm. but I could not help but love him um, anyway. And then, you know, with his cousins... Um, but also there was this dynamic going on for the family that I thought was brought out well, a little bit of those who left. Uh, so his family came to America and then those who stayed and those then in the family who are working uh, with the Americans and then those who have joined the yeah. Taliban. And maybe you can say a bit more about all of those dynamics as well. Yeah, I mean, the book... Um you know, by providing these examples, there's indeed, I uh, forgot the name, but there's one uncle working for the Americans as a translator, yeah. or I'm not sure, uh, of course, has access to, you know, um, this sort of power at the time. Um, and you have the, um, the, the tension between, uh, um, you know, Afghans who've um, left the country uh, in the last 30 years and came back after 2001. So it's very... Um, it, it puts, you know, it shines a light on a very real issue. Yeah. Um, and I think beyond that, if we take a step back, you know, what's happened in Afghanistan since uh, August um, is uh, is somehow related to this because what we've seen, we've seen a massive exodus of, um, of, of you know, more than 120,000 people were airlifted, right? 
but many more have, have left before and after people continue to leave. Uh, I know quite a few people who've left only recently. And these are people who, um, for the most part, have been associated with uh, the former government, uh, but also just people who, you know, aspire to a more open society. Um, very often they're urban people. So you have this very strong tension, uh, which is, you know, between the, the rural world and the urban world, um, which has grown mm -hmm. over the last 20 years. Uh, we have not, Kabul, when I started working in Kabul in 2000, it was 500,000 people. Now it's 5 million people, oh, maybe a little less now after the, the events of August. And I think one of the key challenges for the new regime, of course, and for any Afghan regime for that matter, um, is to, you know, to find ways to, to, to reconcile uh, somehow, um, to have a, a, a form of governance that, that uh, um, is palatable mm. to, uh, you know, to both of these Afghanistans. Um, and that's you know, clearly um, over the last six months, We've seen a huge brain drain um, and it's a terrible loss for the country. And of course, it's terrible uh, for the people who left uh, because, you know, as everybody, but in particular, yeah. Afghans are very attached to their, to their, to their land. Yeah. Now, and um, Sebastian, I think I'm going to leave 99 nights in Logo here unless you have anything else to, you'd mm. like to add. No, no. I encourage yeah. everybody to read it. Yeah, absolutely. I would also encourage everyone to read it. And I have just a couple of more questions for you as we come towards sure. the conclusion. One thing I like to ask humanitarian workers, I, I feel that every humanitarian worker has a situation or someone they've met mm. um, in their working career that has stayed with them for, for many reasons. And what would that person or situation be for you? What would that story of that one person? Mm. Um. Hmm. You know, I uh, there are quite a few situations that I can think of from people, but um, I don't really have a, you know, one specific prominent situation that comes, you know, that comes to mind um, that has uh, struck me. I mean, going to, I was struck, you know, very often going to besieged areas in, uh, in, in Syria. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was, one of the job that was, Keep, keep part of the job, as I mentioned, I was head of office there between 2014 and 2017. It was actually to go and deliver whenever we could. And there you, you know, you were uh, uh, confronted with, you know, very dire humanitarian needs. Yeah. Uh, there are massive needs in Syria everywhere, many protection needs, but in these areas we're talking about, you know, sometimes people were very hungry yeah. uh, on, on, the, on the brink of starvation. So the people you meet there and, and your, your inability to do more than just you know, bring um, bring uh, uh, a little bit of temporary relief. It, of course, is never enough. You know, and your inability to explain why the multilateral, multilateral system that mm -hmm. you represent, in a sense, is not able to to help them by giving the protection. Uh, you know, explain the failure of international protection to them is, is something that always struck me. So it's not really a, a person, but it's mm -hmm. this this uh, being in this difficult position as a humanitarian um, when you're faced with Again, the failure of international protection. When we talk about conflict, which is most of the places we work in, uh, there are different levels. But this was really the epitome of, of in a sense, of uh, of this failure, um, and um, and trying to, you know, trying to do your your, your best. And yet, um, even though people were, of course, angry, um, I have to say that uh, you know there was always a. a Surprisingly, um, you know, uh, uh, dignified welcome and, right. uh, you know, the very human way of, of, of dealing with us uh, from the outside who just came in and, um, you know, gave them a little bit and, 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 and left uh, without being able to address the root causes of, of their suffering and which would go on, you know. Um, so that was a good lesson uh, in, in, um, in, you know, a good lesson in terms of, 
you know, being humble about what we do. Right. But also, as I said about uh, Syria, you know, to, to recognize that, uh, you know, one of our main problems is access. Uh, yeah. I think this is really you know, the main challenge we're facing. And, um, and we need to, you know, one of the ways to address this, this more complicated world that we're getting into is more tension, there's more conflictuality. Uh, clearly, the international norms that, that we all depend on are being eroded. The system, you know, the multilateral system is also less effective. And, you know, we're using uh, euphemisms. Here, yeah. you know. um, and, uh, and yet, um, you know, there will be more needs because of these conflicts, because yeah. of the ecological crisis and all this. So how do we reconcile that? And I think one of the ways uh, is, um, is, is by, um, you know, really identifying all the possible uh, entry points where we can leverage politics yeah. um, in order to, to achieve, uh, you know, to, to improve humanitarian outcomes, uh, whether it's Security Council yeah. or you know, political processes or whatever it may be. Um, I think it's it's really important for us to do that as, as a system and as yeah. you know, more of the system, but also as individual organizations. Yeah. No, I 100% uh, agree with you on that, Sebastian. And my final question for you is... Um, no. If there was, you know, whoever will listen to this conversation, if there was one thing yeah. that they can do to address the causes mm. and consequences of humanitarian crisis, what would that be for you? Mm. I mean, I think um, obviously, you know, people can contribute money, and, and uh, um, that, that's that's always important. Yeah. So there are great organizations out there that uh, that need money. But I would say. Um, that we should never underestimate um, the, the the impact of public opinion on on governments, particularly in countries that are, you know, privileged to have a, a more open societies. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think what people should and and you know and and, and can do is to get involved uh, in different ways. You know, either getting involved in politics or in civil society, or simply just to be aware citizens. And um, and you know, push their governments to um, to act in, in uh, to make sure that you know when they look at their interests, because it's all about interests at the end of the day, yeah. right? Uh, they factor in the humanitarian imperative, um, you know, more. Right. And I think uh, that, that can be helpful. Uh, that can be helpful. Okay, thank you. That was my last question for you. Do you have any questions for me? <clears throat> yes, actually. Um, you know, I was uh, I was reflecting on on the, this is. Great work you're doing, um, but how you know what is then? Um, uh, I guess it's the it's the the end you know the end product of, of all of this um, is going to be a reflection on the the impact of the the current and potential future impact of action on on humanitarian uh, work. But can you say a little a little bit about this? Uh, yeah, yeah, um, and I can say a lot about this as interviews. well. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, yeah, I want to hear it. No, I mean, I, I'm hoping to do as 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 many interviews as I can, um, and also I'm working with the University of Virginia for my sabbatical, and I'm working with another professor, mm. Adrian, at the University of uh, of uh, of Virginia, and. One of the things is like I'm trying to collect as many thoughts and reflections and perspectives, which I'm going to catalog. And then we, with the University of Virginia and Professor Adrian, we are also looking at uh, starting a book club um, at really a global scale. So where we can get people to read uh, a fiction book. And then we want to pair that with uh, possible actions that they can take, either during through the period of reading or at the end of the book, where we will end with um, with uh, a webinar, you know, bringing together humanitarian practitioners, bringing together writers and people interested in, in, in all of this. And then the idea is for me to catalog all of that. And then I'm hoping to convince actually OCHA, as <laughs> my organization, to really with this data and with all of these reflections to see how can we 
be a bit more intentional about using fiction and, and also actually you, you could recommend like for example I feel like almost everyone working in Afghanistan should read 99 Nights in Logur because it gives you such a powerful and interesting context of the culture and the people and then to me it's then how do you pair that with um with data which of course is always going to be extremely important but i'm also think the other piece related to that to me is also just looking at beyond fiction how can we be more intentional about storytelling you know when you're speaking about accountability to affected people empowering people and i think when you were talking about this book one of the things you talked about is agency to me i see really how do we help people tell their own stories whether that is through helping them do narrative non-fiction but to really be able to own and have this space to tell their stories the way that they want to tell them and the parts of their stories that they want to share and so again to me that's kind of combining those two things and trying to see how we get Ocha uh, buy into that is one of the outcomes that I would see from all of this. Interesting, I hope you succeed. No, I, I hope so and thank you, but I also hope that if I don't succeed in this, I still hope that whoever <laughs> listens to these uh, conversations will certainly learn something about um, humanitarian crisis, about what people are going through. And then I hope they'll be a bit more interested in learning more and engaging in some way. Yeah. Great. Thank you for your time today. And thank you so much, really, for listening to this conversation with Sebastian. Um, this is Saha Stories and Humanitarian Action. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, like, comment, and share this video. I'd like to thank my co-producer Jamal Swift and I'd also like to thank the Nomadic Band for the music. Thank you.